Hello everyone and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Lives are made of railroad stories, and one of the big examples of that is in our personal family stories. While railroads often feel like a relic of the past today, they were instrumental in the lives of millions throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. As we have seen, this has left a lasting mark in our pop culture, through our music, our language, and our entertainment. It also means that folks that dive into their personal family stories almost inevitably find an interesting and important railroad connection. In this week's episode, I sit down with Dr. Raymond Chong, a friend of the museum, to discuss his genealogy studies and how his personal family story fits in with the history of the railroad and vice versa. So without further ado, let's listen in. Hello, my name is Jacob Jennerjohn, and I'm joined today by Raymond Chong, who is a friend of the museum who developed a new documentary about his family history titled My Odyssey Between Two Worlds. He traces his family story back seven generations and has several intersections with California railroad history um, and the history of America. Um, So thank you for joining us today. Can you give a little bit of a background about um, yourself and your work? Well, good good morning, Jake. My name is Raymond Douglas Chong, and my Chinese name is Zheng Weiming. And I was born in America. I'm an ABC, American-born Chinese. I went to graduate from University of Southern California in Los Angeles and San Jose State University in San Jose in civil engineering. I'm a professional engineer by, by certification. I'm currently working with the Oregon Department of Transportation here in Portland, Oregon. And I have very many diverse interests and, and tales to share with you today, Jake. Um, so one of the questions we often ask is, um, you know, what got you interested in this type of research? So, so what got you interested in looking at your genealogy for your family? Before that turning point, I was pursuing my American dream, having a successful career, buying a a house, getting married to a beautiful lady. But one day on January 30th, 2003, on a Thursday in Monterey, California, a friend, a dear friend of mine named John Thomas Killip went into a bathtub a revolver, a gun, and kill himself. And when I heard the news that, that day, I was stunned, shocked. And it triggered a introspection of what my life really means. So that was my turning point to look at, instead of outward, I look inward to my roots, both in America and China. For that, I was very, as to say, whitewashed in my thinking. That was the turning point after the suicide of John Thomas Killer. In your documentary, you explained that after learning more about your family roots, you eventually decided to visit the town your father was born in. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? That occurred, my travel back to the village was November 2007. Mm-hmm. And my mother was very reluctant to bring me to the village, but I finally convinced her to bring me. 
and I arrived excited with expectations. All we had was a name of the village, only a name. And in a land called Kaiping, there are literally three or 4,000 villages. So we arrived, we asked the driver, and we got this name of this village and we went up to the countryside, up and down the road, looking for that village and we found it. And it, the village, the literal name means Village of Dragon Hill. When we found the village, finally, we rolled in in our Toyota vans. We jumped out into this plaza next to the ancestor hall, unannounced, to say, hey, we're from America. Everybody heard the clamor, the elders, the kids all rushed out. And they said, and we, we identified who we were. And they say, hey, we've been waiting for you. Oh, wow. Because my father had left 75 years ago in 1932. Fast forward three quarters of a century. I was there representing my father mm -hmm. as a fallen leaf, his spirit. So they, that was a stunning acknowledgement. They already knew who, who I am already when I arrived there, unannounced, unexpectedly, just, just showed up. Yeah, and that's super interesting because like 1930s feels like so long ago in some respects, but it quite literally is it's still within living memory for some of these folks there. Yes, uh, a key point is some of the elders were actually my father's classmates. Um, so, so we talked a little bit about how they reacted to your arrival. Had they had that experience before? Were there other people um, that had come back or was this sort of the first time they saw that? The thinking tip for the typical villagers after they left the village, you don't go, you don't go back. You, yeah. move, you move on, you move forward, you forget your roots. I was one of the very first fallen leaves to return to the village. And, and I actually, over that time, established a good relationship with them, got to know their stories, their tales. But the amazing part, between the distance of time and place, they knew about my background, about my brother's background. I graduated from USC, Tennessee State. They knew about my brother graduated from Caltech Institute of Technology. But I never knew about them, but they knew all my story, my life. Here I am in America, curious what my roots are in China, but they already knew about me already. Yeah. When I show up, hey, hey. I got your house right here. Here's your house. That's interesting. So how did they, did they know through like letters from your father or like, how did they, how did they find that information out about you? Most likely letters, mm -hmm. maybe a, a, an occasional phone call, but most, most likely letters or oral stories that came back from people from, from point to point. Yeah, that's really interesting how that dichotomy of information. Um, yes. But, uh, so what was the most surprising thing about your trip? The most surprising part was totally the experience going from the big city of Kaiping into the countryside and driving to the country roads and seeing the, I mean, it's paradise. The, the, the farm fields, the duck ponds, the rivers, the animals, the, 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 the flora, the fauna, everything was green and lush. And there was some curious structure called Dai Law, castle in the sky. I saw that across the countryside. It was such a dazzling 
mesmerizing experience for me just to experience that environment different from the city into the heartland of my village in the countryside. Yeah, and I, I think, so uh, watching the documentary, I, I think one of the things that stood out to me is just how different, like you're saying, it looked from your typical city because it, it's like this small little area yes. you know, surrounded by that green you know, surroundings, but it's not like, like it, in America, generally, if it's a small town, it's very spread out. Yes, whereas our urban centers are very large or whatever. So this is like right. a weird mix of the both, you know? Because yeah, I, I have no pre precepts of what the village looked like, where it was located. I just went from, from American life, essentially to the Kaiping, which is a city, then to the countryside, different world I entered. Yeah. Your documentary also covers a festival that you got to experience that helped you commemorate your ancestors. What was that experience like? Q-I-N-G-M-I-N-G. It's an annual spring tradition in China to remember your ancestors, your your forefathers in particular, most of the time. And you do that every spring and you sweep and you clean their, their tombs, have a little meal, a toast to them in their memory. It's an annual tradition, similar to like Veterans Day, we, we honor our veterans and remember them. Here in, in China, we honor our ancestors in the same way. And then in this case, I have in the Hill of the Flying Swan, is where they are buried. There are stone tombs, and in that stone tombs are my great grandfather, great great grandfather, great 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 grandfather, and great great grandfather, dating back to the 17th century. And that's what I was trying honoring them. Mm -hmm. um, so getting to see sort of this festival surrounding um, your, your ancestors. Um, as you said, dating back to the 17th century. Um, did that, you know, help you feel more connected to these to these folks? Oh, correct, correction. 18th century. 18th yes. Century. Yeah. yeah, it made me more connected because it, it's a physical tie. Mm -hmm. It's not like a paper name or a, a oral story. It's actually, I can touch it, feel it. I, I can touch the, the, the tombs. Below them, they're buried right there facing me. So it's very tangible, very physical, mm -hmm. very realistic, authentic to me. But there, these are my forefathers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that physical representation of memory is something that I think is, is really fascinating. Here at the museum, we obviously deal with that a lot. So take something like our cab forward locomotive. And like, yeah, sure, that's a really cool physical object in and of itself. But it also represents so much more than that. At the museum, we always say that our lives are made of railroad stories, so when we put together a new exhibit or interpret an object like that, we try to make the physical object connect to an individual community member. And it's definitely important to have that physical object to help mediate between experience and memory. Um, and sort of continuing on that note that we've been talking about here, you also got to visit your family's old home. What was that like? Well, it's not your typical American home. It was built in the late 19th century by my great grandfather, Ling Chung. But looking at that simple brick house, two-story, it's primitive. But for them, at that time, it was a mansion relative to the times. And the understanding was, when I realized it was here, my, my grandfather was raised. 
It was here my grandfather and grandmother lived together. It was here that my father was born in 1922. So it's very, it's, I, I see the connection right there. It's, it's, it is my roots from my grandfather to my father to me here in America, mm -hmm. a house, that very house. One thing I found interesting just listening to, to or watching the documentary was the fact that that house was you know, still there. Like if we think of America, it would be, you know, we, we wouldn't really consider leaving a house there that wasn't lived in for, for that long period of time. Yeah, that would be more like a teardown, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So is that, was that common for that, for that village? Was that like a normal circumstance? It was because the, the village is decaying, it's slowly, people are moving out, that a lot of the houses are abandoned. Mm -hmm. And so they left intact as they as they were when that person left, like maybe during World War II, and like it hasn't changed. It's still there, intact as is. And in my case, my grandmother left there around 1954. It wasn't touched since that time. Which you know, but like you're saying, it does give you this interesting opportunity to sort of see what life was like back then. And oh yes, to them it, it looked grand, but to me it was very primitive. But hey, different perspective. Yeah, in 80 years, I'm sure what we live in will look, um, you know, not as good as what they have. I'm sure we'll have some robots in the corner or something. Right, right. <laughs> okay, so now that we got to hear some of uh, that experience you had while researching, let's dive into some of the results of your study. So in that documentary, you talk a lot about Gold Mountain. What do you mean by that? What happened, was going on for a century in China was this, what called a century of humiliation, a century of wars in China. People were desperate to get out of China. And there were places to seek your wealth. And those were riches called Gold Mountain, whether it's America, Canada, or Australia, you would be a rich man getting gold coins, golden egos. So they call it Gold Mountain. Um, let's see. And then um, so as you said, you had seven generations um, go to the United States. Yes. Um, so maybe let's do a brief rundown of some of those folks. Um, so, I, so I know one came in 1849 during the gold rush. What was, um, what was his story? His story was, as I mentioned, the desperation. What was happening in China was famines, uh, wars, um, crime. So he went around 1849 to... California for the gold fields. And part of the gold rush, he spent a few years there and came back. So that, his name was Chin Sin Jung. That was my great, great, great grandfather. And do we know if he was um, successful in finding gold? I know, um, you know different people had different lucks out there. The majority of the Chinese who went there as sojourners and pioneers was pretty minimal. Very few success stories. He, he was one of the one who got there, but not he was not we call it rich or successful in, in, in that measure. No. Gotcha. Um, and then another one you talked about was a relative um, who, you know, as a member of the California State Railroad Museum, um, uh, is especially important to our our podcast uh, because yes. he's one of the ten thousand Chinese railroad workers who helped build the transcontinental railroads. Uh, yes. Yeah. Did you um, uncover any stories about him? Yes. It was an oral story. 
I'm told by my aunt, and it was confirmed by the elders in the village of uh, Dragon Hill, that Bunyan Chung, my great, great grandfather, arrived here in America around 1865. And the tidbit I realized was from my aunt telling the story about him, was he was living in a city that was always moving, a city that always was moving. In other words, he went from camp to camp along the Transcontinental Railroad. That, that was a stunning illustration. I mean, her mind, that's just all the she heard from the elders in, in, in the back in the village. But the way she, when I realized, oh, it was Transcontinental Railroad. So I made that connection. Yeah. And I went back with my researcher and they confirmed the story of him. And they also told me some stories about him that he was in poverty in the village. He was hunting for firewood just to make a living. He was married. There's constant fear of bandits during that time. So he left for Go Mountain around 1865 with his cousin to help build the trunk kind of railroad. Yeah, and you mentioned the idea of, of moving cities and describing these work camps as moving cities, and I, I think that's really interesting. I think it speaks well to the logistical nightmare that building the transcontinental railroad must have entailed. It also speaks a bit to what that experience must have been like for folks coming over from China. As you mentioned, the town he came from wasn't very big, so he's working out of a work camp that's probably bigger than anything he's lived in before. Moving city. She didn't know the context of what that meant, but I did when she said that term. So one of your forefathers in particular got quite wealthy from his journey to Gold Mountain. Can you tell us a little bit about his story? Well, we, we did talk about my Gold Rush mm -hmm. and the Transcontinental Railroad. My other story I'd like to share is my great-grandfather, Hoi Ling Chung. He um, came in around 1892 to America, to Boston, Chinatown, and he was a true American success story. He found his capitalist dream as a lord of gambling and opium in Boston, Chinatown. He was well-fed, he was well-groomed, he wore silky gowns, gold rings, gold necklace. And when he went back to the village in 1926, he was the most VIP of everybody. They look at, up to him. Yeah, I'd imagine he'd have the, the biggest gold mountain house. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that, well, that was the house that I was. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah. yeah that's got to be something to go back to to the village after becoming you know that that financially successful. Yes. Mm -hmm. So everybody knew his history, his life. He was a famous figure of that village. Yeah. The most yeah. memorable one. Did they still talk about him when you? Oh yeah, they do. They do even now. Wow. He died around 1939 or so. They oh, wow. still talk about him. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like. Like when we think of, of famous people from the past, we think of them like people who had like yeah. more global or, or national. Like Roosevelt or. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah. like memory can be localized too. With yeah, this. at the village level. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. They talk about his, his mannerism, his thinking, his reputation. California State Parks is happy to announce its new Adventure Pass program. This program gets fourth graders and their families into 19 state parks, free of charge, until August 30th, 
2022. And that includes the California State Railroad Museum. To sign up for the pass, visit reservecalifornia.com. Often the story of the Chinese railroad workers who built the western half of the transcontinental railroad ends with the Golden Spike Ceremony. And often immigrant stories only speak to those that chose to remain in the United States. Something I really liked about your documentary is that it touches a bit on what happened to folks who returned home to China after finding success in Gold Mountain. Can you tell our audience a bit about these Gold Mountain houses that were built by folks that returned home? Well, in the case of Guanyin Chung, my great-great-grandfather, he did find some, some gold. He earned his money. He, he kept it. He brought his riches. So you're a rich man. I am a gold mountain man returning to my, my village. So what did I do? Two things, most likely. You marry a second wife. And number two, since you have a bigger family, you build a new villa called a gold mountain house. Um, okay, so then another interesting thing I thought from the documentary um, was the story behind the large watchtower in the um, in the village. Yes, there are what they call three watchtowers. They call it Dialog, D-I-A-O-L-O-U. The metaphor is castle in the sky. And these castle in the skies were used for many purposes, but the unique thing over the course of 400 years in Kaiping, it was a fusion of Chinese and European architecture. It was an interpretation of a hybrid structure. And in the case of the Dai Law in the village, it was used, the primary one in the gateway of the village was as to watch for bandits, criminals. So it's a high tower, you look across the horizon, looking for bandits and, 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 and other people. Be, be ready for them or, or hide or secure your house. That was the purpose of those uh, dialogue. And was there, um, was there a reason to concern about bandits? Was that a thing that was happening more and more? Yes, it was, it was constant. Uh, another thing, they heard stories about Gold Mountain Men. Well, you got money. Well, let's pay a visit. Well, let's find his goal. So there's a constant fear of that. Um, okay, so what, what do you think your biggest takeaway from your research has been? My take biggest takeaway is beyond what I just told you is the long story, the journey of my family. That village uh, of Dragon Head was founded in 1506 AD. There are stories about that related to the emperor. And there are many stories I have the whole narrative of that village from 1506 to now. I have all the tales of the struggles, the sacrifices, the, the turmoil of that time at my village from 1506 to now. But further into that, I into what we call a true Chinese geology called Jai Pu. This is a your family tree book. And I went back and found a lineage of all my forefathers to the yellow emperor Hongdi, 2710 BC. Oh my 2710 God. BC, of that lineage, 
from me to him, 158 generations. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so, that would be an experience. So you see the micro level inertia was, look back to my family village, see my father and grandfather. And now I have a whole narrative that goes back far into 2710 BC. All my respected forefathers, whether they were simple laborers, whether they were civil servants, whether they were officials, things of that nature. I have a whole expansive story of my forefathers. And in yeah. Chinese tradition, it's focused on the men, the male line, not, not the female. So I have that perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting because that's, I mean, that basically goes back as far as, as you can go. You know, like there's not yes. going to be much written records before that. Right. From the Chinese perspective, that was the dawn of the beginning of China. Mm -hmm. You hear stories of, hey, that China has 5,000 years of history. Well, that, that is literally the, the beginning. So I found my roots, not just to the village, but to the founding of the original China 5,000 years ago. And, um, so you talked about the founding of, of uh, the village that you went to, um, you know, comparatively recently to, you know, we're talking about yeah. 5,000 years ago. Um, was there another place they spent a lot of time in, you know, that you found with that 158 generation? Story? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very scattered. Mm -hmm. I actually have a website that talks about up to 700 AD, all my forefathers it, it's over the, over the place. It's not, it's a migration, migratory path, but pretty interesting to kind of find all my forefathers uh, who I'm connected with, scholars, uh, civil servants, things of that, that nature. Um, okay, so so thinking back maybe about the, um, maybe the trip, maybe your, your research, anything like that, what, what do you think has surprised you the most? What surprised me the most, looking back now, it's 18 years since the tragic suicide of my friend, John Tom McKillop, was my roots between America and China and the meaning of life. And it transformed myself, my life, before that 2003, your classic American dreamer as a civil engineer, and it transformed me more into a storyteller, a poet, a lyricist, filmmaker, a journalist. It, it, it transformed me from one frame to a more of a global frame of looking at life. And all, all Americans, we, we all have a, a story to tell, whether in mm -hmm. Europe, Africa, or Asia. We all have, we have a common heritage of sharing that journey in life. Definitely. Um, so this might be the, the same answer. Um, this question might have the same answer, uh, but what did you find most meaningful about your research? What's most meaningful is I'm passing on that information to my son, Kinji Kyle Chong, my number one son, my only son actually. And uh, he appreciate his roots. And uh, I, he thought initially I was crazy or mad, pursuing this um, genealogy and collecting all these archives. But when, when I have been able to document in film and in programs, he understands it now and appreciates it. And because of that, one aspect, I think that's why he's a, he's a filmmaker now. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the best things about doing, you know, genealogy work or anything that deals a lot with oral histories is, as you said, um, kind of capturing their voices of people before um, they pass away and yes. um, kind of looking at, at memory as this, this like vital resource. Um, it's important because we, we had to have some kind of trace to our, our, our past mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm doing my part for my village in, in China. If somebody wanted to get into genealogy themselves, do you have any advice? Maybe like, what did you do during that four-year period to research before? Uh, well, they, now? Yes, the key thing initially is talk to your to your relatives and capture their own stories and get any archives, whether it's old photos, mementos, um, journals, diaries. Get at that. That's idea. In my case, I had none of it. I had to scrounge, hunt, pursue it because for some of my relatives of their experience, it's a dark history. They don't, they didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. So I had to be very persistent in my madness to, to find the truth. Yeah. And the second thing, especially for the Chinese, is the Chinese immigration files by the National Archives whether in San Bruno or in Seattle or in Boston and New York, because of the Chinese Exclusion Act from 19, 1882 to up to 1943, there was a, a documentation of who you were, where you, ha you had to have your own certificate of identity, where you had your interviews, transcript, where you had pictures, maybe business license, things of that nature. If you can gather that, that would be your foundation to trace your forefathers' uh, roots here in America. And yeah. it's very comprehensive, very complete. But I didn't know about it until after the fact, and I found my, my father's story in Boston, my, 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 um, my grandfather's story in Boston. So you found all that out first, and then you found the resource afterwards. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and uh, one, one tip, one discovery of my, my grandfather's um, Chinese immigration file, I knew I had a grandmother, right? I had a grandmother. But there was a single line, married, first wife died. It stunned me. Grandpa had a second woman. Oh. Grandma was wife number two. He married, he had a wife number one who he left in the village. I didn't know about it. Yeah, that's interesting. You, wow. Yeah, because I guess- One line, single line. I study inside out, like you'd be very thorough as a historian. And that simple line. Uh, First wife died. And oh, my grandma's number two wife. I didn't know that. And nobody told me that. Was, my, my father was dead, long gone. My grandfather was dead, long gone. But wow. Yeah, no, and I think that like that really speaks to what you were saying earlier about like one of the the reasons why we have to um, you know add on to things like oral memory or whatever is because sometimes people don't talk about everything in their past or maybe it just doesn't come up maybe the resource isn't available because people passed away earlier yes and another tidbit of interest is i i found my grandmother's file and it told her her struggle to come to america because because the chinese inclusion act and all the discrimination it's hard for the men to bring their wives mm -hmm. but when I was looking at the, at the context of the big story and seeing at a different level, I suddenly realized my grandfather and grandmother were separated for 43 years. 
1923 when he left for Boston until she arrived in 1966 at LAX on February 14th, 1966, and she showed up. They were separate for 43 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, because then, like, I mean, this is long distance before we had things, obviously, like Zoom and all that to keep, because even I would imagine just, like, seeing what that person looked like that for so long because photographs can only do so much yes. exactly an opportunity from a young mother to a elderly lady four or three years later and at that time i was 10 years old mm-hmm. and as i told you that art my father grandma didn't talk about anything it's just mm-hmm. things happen and suddenly in 1966 grandma showed up like, you need to me anything it's okay he's my grandma okay here yeah. i am and fast forward decades later, after they're all long gone, I realized the disconnect of my grandfather and grandmother for 43 years. He didn't tell me that. Mm-hmm. It was pretty obvious when, when I studied the, the, the immigration file. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. We always appreciate your help throughout the museum, helping us with some of our research um, into the lives of the um, the Chinese Railroad Workers and helping out with our different exhibits and presentations and things like that. Appreciate that time. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad to be affiliated with the California State Railroad Museum and having my start with my son as part of the exhibit of the Chinese um, Workers Experience. I'm, I'm glad to be part of the, the museum. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk. Here at the museum, we like to say that our lives are made of railroad stories. And hopefully, after learning more about Dr. Raymond Chong's family story, you have a better idea about the many connections between railroad stories and family backgrounds. We encourage you to do your own family research, and I'm sure you will find some connections to the railroad yourself. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Raymond Chong's story, visit the links in the description below. If you're interested in learning more about how Chinese immigration relates directly to the California State Railroad Museum, you can visit our website or stop by the museum. We hope you join us again on December 3rd for our next episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk.